Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today we have Professor Dr. Wenyuan Wu. She is previously was the Director of the Administration at the Asian American Coalition for Education and is currently the Executive Director of Californians for Equal Rights. And we've got a lot to talk about, about the work that she's been doing uh, here in the United States around issues of education, around issues of critical race theory and critical social justice. But before we get to all that, the first question is always, what did we bring to this conversation? Wen Yuan, what did you bring to drink? Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. Just a small correction, I am not a professor. I wish I was. Uh, this is what I'm drinking <laughs> right now. I am uh, holding up a can of LaCroix Pamplemousse <laughs> flavored soda. And this is a great sign of my successful assimilation into America's mainstream culture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes it is. David, do you have anything? I do. You know, I've embarrassed myself with what I've been drinking so many times on this podcast that like, why stop now? So I actually must admit, I went through the McDonald's drive through to get a large Diet Coke uh, this morning because it's 99 cents. So um, anyway, that's what I'm drinking. Maybe I can reach out to McDonald's and see if they'll like give us a little bit of, you know, plug for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see. see, I knew it meant something. Well, I am drinking a spiked, I'm doing something new, a spiked lemonade. So there you have mm -hmm. it. And before we get started, um, when you and I want to apologize, I know you're Dr. Wu. And so I just automatically said professor. So my bad. Thank you for the correction. Uh, you work very hard for your for to be Dr. Wu. And actually, that's my let me start there because you are we have a lot in common. You are a uh, your PhD is in international studies. And that's what my degree is in as, as well. And got my some degrees from Johns, or, well, Johns Hopkins U University, but also Nanjing University. So that's where we're connected. And here's my question to you. I've been seeing so much discussion around critical race theory and its infiltration into our education system. I know that this is something that's very important to you and something that you're working on very closely. And here's an something I have observed, and I'd love to get your feedback, and we'll start here. A lot of people, particularly in California, uh, that I noticed that are very much against this and also against Prop 16, which we'll get into, and I'd love for you to explain, are a lot of Asian Americans. And I think that the, I see a strong coalition of Asian Americans who have, this is Education is so important in the Asian American community in general, I'm stereotyping in general, but I've seen such a strength in numbers from the Asian community around issues of uh, critical race theory in the schools. And I'd love to you, for you to speak to that and, and why, why it's important to you personally, uh, Dr. Wu, and then maybe why it's important um, specifically to the Asian community and then in general as well. Wow, okay, those are a lot of uh, important and loaded questions. So let me, <laughs> let, me, let me start with my, my, my personal uh, uh, motivations in, a, in working against critical race theory. And it's not just in its academic nitty gritty, but against its real life implications. So as you uh, mentioned, my, my intellectual background is in international studies. Like you, I uh, studied political science, international relations, and political economy you know, as some as the three common tracks of international studies in my graduate studies. And uh, as a graduate teaching assistant, I used to teach critical race theory as a class for advanced political science students and master students in international studies as a sub-school of thought 
um, which is a hodgepodge of neo-Marxism, radical feminism, constructivism, um, and the Frankfurt School of Thought, as well as uh, as well as um, postmodernism. So it's a, it's a rather uh, it's a rather political and contested theory that examines all our social relations, the economic governance of our society and our political institutions through a race-based point of view or through the prism of race. And I find that uh, theoretical origin to be at least an imperfect explanation of our society in both our history and our present. And it's, uh, I, I would call this um, um, bankrupt ideology, a bankrupt theory of thought that, that misguides our public discourse and our, uh, our, our national conversations on race, racism, and, and how to go forward beyond you know, our, our past historical shackles of racism. So that's my, uh, my personal motivation, which is to stop uh, critical race theory and keep it where it belongs, which is uh, its academic monkey cage. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, we are seeing an aggressive trend of this dogma informing our public discussions, informing our policies and programs from education to workplaces, to local governance, to even national governance. So that's the, that's the dangerous part. And I think that this practical, this practical ground uh, is the reason why uh, this theory and its, uh, its implementation have, uh, have generated so much public uh, opposition. So now I, you know, I, I always consider myself first and foremost an individual, an American, and then one of um, Asian descent or of Chinese descent. So I, you know, I always put a disclaimer whenever uh, we venture into this topic on the Asian American uh, community and our uh, recent civil rights journey for equal rights and equal education rights. I always put out this disclaimer that I cannot speak on behalf of the whole community, which is not a monolith, as the other side would always say when it serves them, right? But I can try to make uh, some logical inference and, and explanations based on my experience uh, engaging the community, especially the community in California. So last year, as, uh, as you may have uh, read about in the news, California, the California leg legislature pushed out a ballot measure called Proposition 16 onto the November state election, state general election. And the, the, pro the proposition uh, was a simple repeal of the California Constitution, Article 1, Section 31A, um, which says the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public education, public employment, and public contracting. So Proposition 16 intended to repeal these very simple and elegant 37 words, which became the, which is the, the basis of California's constitutional principle of equal treatment. And it was passed, in, passed in, um, into law by Prop 209 back in 1996. So I was honored and privileged to, uh, to, to be called to lead a campaign uh, against Proposition 16, which was later known as uh, the No on 16 campaign. We did a brilliant campaign. Uh, we were outspent by a factor of 16 to one. So the other side raised over $31 million. We raised a little over $1.7 million, mostly from small grassroots donors. Uh, 
with a big majority coming from the, the Chinese American community in California. Uh, I think that uh, Asian Americans have since the early 1990s really fought to preserve the true notion of the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, uh, as well as the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution to, pre to safeguard equal education rights for all American students, regardless of race. And uh, it, it just happens to be, to be the Asian American students in the present political and social context that who have been discriminated against uh, disproportionately by both Ivy League institutions, other selective colleges and, and K-12 gifted and talented programs throughout the country. So the, the, the galvanizing uh, of the Asian American community nationwide and in California last year to, to, to reject, the, um, reject the, the notion of racial preferences or preferential treatment is built upon a reaction to, to ongoing systematic discrimination in, in education against high performing Asian American students. But more importantly, I would say that we, we are fighting not only for our interests, we are fighting more importantly for this principal issue for what we think should constitute the American ideal or the American dream. And, and in this sense, um, Asian Americans emphasize on education, in my opinion, is nothing Asian, is nothing unique. It is very much in line with our um, founding principles of equality, of merit, and, and, and liberty. So in this way, you know, we're, we're very, Proud to have fought um, uh, on the on the forefront of uh, recent recent battles such as NOAA 16, such as uh, a similar battle in Washington State in 2019 against Referendum 88, um, and 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 fights against um, Harvard University, Yale, Princeton, and and others on um, anti-Asian discrimination, but. Uh, the bottom line is that we're fighting for the same thing. We're fighting for the same thing, which is equal citizenship, equal access, and true equality. And and I think on this basis, uh, we we have been able to build a truly diverse and broad-based coalition. Last year against Prop 16 in California, which went down uh, by 57.2% of the uh, of of the electorate, over nine point seven two million Californians voted against racial preferences, and and that's in in America's most populated and most progressive state. So that's impressive. But we're also seeing a continuation of such coalition, organic coalition building from uh, electoral matters such as Prop sixteen to this broader cultural. Um, battle against critical race theory. So in Texas, for example, in where, where, where you are in Austin, Texas, right? In South Lake, uh, I think it was last month, two uh, school, two candidates for the, uh, for, for the South Lake school board won the election on anti-CRT or anti-critical race theory platforms. And that's a district which went overwhelmingly for Biden last year. So I would also argue that this coalition, this alliance is truly bipartisan in nature. You know, I've got what you were absolutely right to say, and there is no monolith. And I, you know, we all can only speak for each other. So thank you for, for, for saying that because I so appreciate that so much. That said, I'm still going <clears> to <throat> generalize a little bit. Forgive me for that because I do recognize all of our individuality. But what I see as someone who's studied, lived, worked in China is, you know, there's what's so fascinating to me is what I do see in a lot, not all, a lot of, of Asian Americans, and particularly for me that I'm connected with Chinese Americans, 
is there is this sense of fighting for exactly what you said. I mean, the immigration to America was for the ideals that you mentioned, liberty, equality, freedom. And so I see that playing out now in these fights that you just mentioned, whether it's the CRT in school, Prop 16, would you would you agree that, you know, in general, a lot of people, immigrants in general, immigrants in general, a lot of immigrants who come here to America come for certain values that they want to see play out. And when I think that when they don't see it playing out, then there's that impetus like to act and, and maybe even more so sometimes than, you know, a someone who is born and raised in America, because, you know, they almost take it for granted. Would, would you agree with that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I agree with uh, the, this um, impetus of um, almost a visceral <laughs> uh, rush to, to safeguard and promote what we believe in as the, the pull factors that have attracted us to come here, to put our roots down here. And and I, you know, I think, I think I'm very proud of, of a lot of uh, the volunteers and community leaders that I've worked with in the last three to four years from the Asian community who are predominantly first generation immigrants. And, and I, I, I do see this, uh, this common theme of uh, standing up, showing up and fighting for what we believe as true American values, and and I always make this uh, this argument that you know we're n- we're not less American just because we um, we have different national origins or we don't speak English as our first language, but what we are what we're fighting for here is a common good, and I would also uh, extend the argument by saying that. Most Americans, whether they are Americans by birth or by choice, are 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 um, motivated by 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 this common sense uh, of uh, protecting our liberal values. Essentially, when we look at you know what our founding principles are, we we are conserving uh, the, the fruits of a. Uh, radical liberal revolution right and and i i think i think that's um these values have undergirded have facilitated our nation's success and prosperity and global competitiveness for for too long and sometimes we uh we can lose sight you know of uh, of petty divisions and petty infighting and and we um we as a society can rush to uh, to to this pessimist view of of our country and about history as de- depicted by critical race theory. It always it's always easier to avoid real real um, questions about why why we have racial inequalities, why we have the social ills that. Uh, are not escaped by a demo- democracy, and why why we don't have um, why why don't why we don't have um, the achievements of these lofty goals of our founding fathers? Uh, but I can tell you that critical race theory, or to examine our past and present through the lenses of race, is not the answer. The medicine is worse. And the disease. So we have a new concept, not so new, but it's a concept that's been revamped called equity that has been popularized, I'm sure you are well aware, by Ibrahim X. Kendi. Um, and um, I know that some of the ideas we've ar- you've already touched on are really referred to that concept, but I want to take it a step further. Um, one possible problem with the equity concept. I'm Jewish, by the way, so we are also part of a community that might be on the uh, losing end of this new concept. Um, one idea is that if it is the case that people only get are left behind or, um, because of discrimination, because of white supremacy, 
then the only way they're getting ahead is because of white supremacy. And that would then implicate Asian Americans, it would implicate Jewish Americans, it would implicate all the, the communities that are proportionally represented in certain workspaces and universities and the like. And that seems to be a dangerous label uh, to say that you've been complicit in white supremacy so that you could get ahead. You're white adjacent is another term we've, we've right. heard frequently. Yeah. What is your take on that? Are you concerned that it's not only going to be used against you in terms of numbers? In other words, because more people who are less qualified get into the university or into the workplace, um, you will be a natural casualty of that because of the numbers game, but you might be specifically targeted because you're overrepresented in, mm -hmm. in the numbers. What is your take on that? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I think that equity is, has become an a amorphous code name for critical race theory in practice. So when we look at the dictionary definition of equity, uh, it literally means justice and fairness and by natural law. But we as a modern society have really uh, sort of hijacked the term to mean equal outcomes. And that carries a lot of political conno uh, connotations as well as unintended consequences. Right, and you mentioned Ibrahim uh, Kendi. So he has this, this uh, famous quote, which I think really uh, represents the illiberal part of critical race theory and anti-racism. He, he says, and I quote, the defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is cre creating inequity, then it is racist, quote ends. So basically, according to Ibram Kendi and uh, other critical race theory proponents, equity becomes an overarching societal goal when we, when we look at our um, educational um, policies in terms of admissions in higher education and also uh, in, in K-12 education nowadays, as well as uh, policies in the workplaces and in, in governance, right? So I, I think it's very dangerous. It's playing with fire because we're putting the, we're putting a, a, a word that has little substance without further elaboration uh, into we're, we're giving it so much meaning and cadence that we, you know, we miss the unintended consequences and the feedback loops as a result of um, engaging in racial equity uh, in all our uh, aspects of our pu public life. So in education, for example, you mentioned this concept of over-representation over versus under-representation. I, I think that notion is political in nature and it's unhelpful in, in one uh, for, for two reasons. One, it, is, it, it creates unduly burdens and discrimination against the so-called overrepresented student groups. So in, in this case, uh, it's Asian American students nowadays and Jewish students about a, about a century ago, right? And, and it dismisses the individual agency and, and, and within group differences of, the, of this so-called overrepresented student group, but it's also a politically disfavored group. And um, if you tell me that um, a student who come, whose parents toil in ethnic enclaves in Chinatown, in New York, who, um, who is not privileged in any way, you know, needs to be, uh, needs to give, its, give his or her admission slot into a prestigious educational institution to accommodate racial equity. I would tell you that it's ridiculous. It's unfair. So it betrays the, the natural definition of equity. And, I would say also say that any attempt to make a specific 
institution entirely representative of our general population will always founder on the sheer complexity of American, American gen, uh, dem, demographics and the nature of the institution itself. So, so and number two, I think uh, engaging or engaging or being obsessed with this uh, this this uh, prescription of overrepresentation versus underrepresentation also hurts the so-called underrepresented student groups. I so right. Yeah. Go ahead. So so I wanna I wanna dig a little deeper into CRT. Um, you were a bit critical. I think you said it's been, um, you know, it's been bankrupt uh, ideology. Um, and yet, if one actually looks at critical race theory, it, I, I would argue it, it, it has two basic propositions. One is that there is bias that's embedded in systems of society. And two, that the people adversely affected by those bias systems are more likely to understand, see it, and be able to define it than the dominant culture. Now, it seems though that in some ways when you're talking about the Asian Americans being a politically disfavored group, in a way you're acknowledging an observation of critical race theory that there might be systemic bias against certain groups, including Asian Americans. Um, and so I'm wondering if there's a third way to speak about critical race theory that doesn't either uphold it as a dogma as we're seeing in schools or dismiss it too easily because it's being used in the way that it's being used, but rather says it's a lens. It has a truth that might hold in certain contexts, but not other contexts. What do you, what do you think of that? Um, I, I would clarify here that I don't think critical race theory holds an explanation as to why Asian American students uh, for example, have been discriminated against in particularly in the area of uh, seeking admissions into uh, top universities and colleges. I don't think uh, race or racism plays a part in that explanation. So if we go down the, 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 the road uh, prescribed by critical race theory, then uh, systematic disadvantages or adverse outcomes are always a result of institutional disadvantages, and in in many um, in, in in many cases are uh, are a result of white supremacy, right, or or racism. But I I really think that that this kind of uh, sort of a fatalist and deterministic view of our social and political outcomes is inaccurate because if we look at just the case of, of anti-Asian discrimination in education, I think a lot of the, uh, the, the systematic practices can be traced back to policy failures that have failed to lift up uh, underserved and under-resourced under student students and communities. And as a result, Asian American students become a scapegoat to at the altar of racial equity to compensate for uh, for underrepresentation in the other communities. So, so I don't. I, I think that we really need to dig deeper at the policy level instead of the the politics. And uh, coming back to your question on um, how we can best uh, utilize the, the the analytical approach um, pro promoted by critical race theory, I really that number one, we need to keep critical race theory where it, where it should belong, which is in, in, the, in ivory towers. You know, it, it is a very abstract and interdisciplinary um, school of thought that, needs, that, that should be studied by students with advanced knowledge in, in political science, in social studies, as well as uh, students with a certain level of critical thinking and cognitive capacity. And it should not be propagated to a degree um, that it becomes a prevalent source of, um, source of inspiration or an ideological foundation for practices involving children uh, 
in even in elementary schools, such as the a case that I worked on uh, last late last year that involved a, a third grade math class in Cupertino, California, that uh, in which the math teacher asked the students third grade third graders to decon deconstruct their intersectional social identities. So I think that's when we really get into the, the danger zone as a result sure. of, of criti promoting critical race theory in our public life. Yeah, I mean, obviously I completely agree with that. That's absurd. Um, do, you, do you favor all such efforts to sort of ban CRT from K through 12? It's a, and I'm sorry for the pause. Uh, yes no, and please. no. Yes and no. I I think that it's encouraging news to see lawmakers throughout the country uh, at the state level and state legislatures um, taking up efforts to ban teaching of divisive concepts, uh, ban race shaming, racial stereotyping, race essentialism in K to twelve, but. There are uh, there are um, a number of issues with this legislative, what I call legislative approach to take on critical race theory. Number one is the unnecessary politicization of the theory and its practice. Because when you look at the over dozen a dozen states that have banned so-called critical race theory in K to twelve classrooms, those are predominantly Republican. Uh, dominated legislatures. So we run into this uh, this this problem of the opposition against uh, critical race theory being equated as a conservative crusade, but it is not. Even in the example that I just gave, um, South Lake, Texas, it was a truly um, broad-based effort that took down uh, that that helped these two school board candidates gain uh, their gain their positions in in a very progressive school district. So I think that the coalition need, needs to move beyond the conservative base, and that's the only way that we can win. Mm -hmm. and yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Number two, I'll ask in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and number two, it's really about the implementation. Of, of these bans, how do we enforce these legislative rules in individual school districts and individual schools when teachers who have been um, indoctrinated themselves on critical race theory are hellbent on teaching systemic racism, racial justice, um, anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion as as the center of their their, edu their educational and pedagogical approaches, how how do we truly root these practices out? I don't think the legislature um, approach is the answer. I think that we need to look more uh, into the 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 ground game, you know, in in our local communities and school districts, as well as in what. Uh, what can shape and reorient our culture. So at the end of the day, the goal is always to change the hearts and the minds of people so that they can see beyond the lies, the dishonesty and trickery of this doctrine. And so the goal, in other words, is always to raise public awareness rather than you know, to challenge the practices in legislatures or in courts. Yeah, I think that's key. I think you're absolutely right because you you can legislate all day long, and if you know the hearts and minds of uh, of our teachers and educators say a different thing, that's not going to have an impact. You know, I wanted to uh, not really changing gears. It was based on what you said a little bit earlier, though. You know, the politicization <laughs> tongue tied today um, of this issue. I, I don't know how to get beyond it being politicized, it very much disturbs me how politicized it has become. But here's what's interesting to me. To the extent that, and we'll talk politics for a minute, 
although that's not really the purpose. But to the extent that we saw the uh, the number of uh, second generation Americans voting for Donald Trump, I don't think it was because they were necessarily turning conservative per se. But I, I, I honestly think that a lot of that is because of this narrative of critical race theory and the narrative of, of, of critical social justice, where people were saying, this doesn't speak to me. And it has become politicized because it has become where it is, you know, more the Democratic Party that uses those that language. And you saw the conservative party, the Republican Party, who were was fighting against it. And I honestly think to the extent, and I could be totally wrong, this is a guess, but I honestly think to the extent that we saw a lot of second generation Americans um, vote, put their vote in for Trump, it was because almost exclusively, I would argue, don't know, don't have the facts in my mind because of that issue. Yeah, that's that's a highly possible hypothesis. <laughs> a hypothesis, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, in, in embracing critical race theory, in embracing this uh, a political agenda of racial justice, I fear that the Democratic Party is really overreaching and, and is engaging in counterproductive political pandering. To, 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 to the American uh, public. And in a way, it's, I, I think that it's going to backfire and it will also lead to a certain level of implosion with, within the party because when we're examining uh, the, the, the basic tenets of critical race theory, we realize that critical race theory is essentially an illiberal doctrine and illiberal school of thought. So, so fighting critical race theory then come, becomes an intensely moral issue that unites people of different political, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. And if one of the two dominant political parties in the United States cannot decide on um, um, breaking freely, whether or not to break freely with this illiberal doctrine, it's going to cause some damages to, to the party. Yeah, I, 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 um, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Well, first of all, you know, I'm concerned about our very uh, rigid two-party system where you know, you, you, you're kind of forced into one or the other and it, it really does hinge on, like I just said, maybe one issue that flips you one way or the other. Uh, so, so there's that, and that's a whole different conversation. But you, you mentioned something, and I do see there is a growing fear that the current administration um, is exacerbating, perhaps, or promoting even, I guess, some of these dialogue, our national dialogue around race and critical race theory that is even as much as we've seen the pushback, which has been, you know, what you're doing in California, you know, no on Prop 6, what we we saw in Texas and South Lake, you know, we saw in Idaho recently. But then when you've got a national at the federal level, you know, dialogue around, I mean, the, the, the president said the other day, um, white supremacy is the biggest terrorist threat to our nation. I believe, I believe that's an exact quote. Right. That may be true, by the way, and it still may be that ideologies on the left are a tremendous threat to our liberal society. In other words, those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? You could, you could say that there are two different kinds of threats. There's a terrorist threat of white supremacy or white nationalism, and there's an ideological threat from the left that threatens to undermine our liberal society, and those both could be true. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I agree. That's a great, I love that. Uh, but but that's not what we're saying. At least on at the federal level, at the national level. I mean, you, yes, there's a white supremacy. Whenever you find it, is a problem. Um, right. But you know, there it's framed only as that, and that promotes this uh, advocacy 
of critical race theory, particularly among a lot of people who don't really even understand critical, critical race theory has become a slogan word at this point, which basically, it, um, and, and, and when you, and you said this at the beginning, it pretty much equity and critical race theory have almost become synonymous. And I would say like white supremacy and critical race theory have almost become synonymous. So we've got a lot of these slogan words that have caught on that are being um, equated with critical race theory incorrectly. Can, can, before you answer, can I just give an alternative view of the Biden administration that I'm not sure I buy, by the way, but I just wanted to put it out there. Another yeah. interpretation would be that the Biden administration understands that it has it's in a very difficult dilemma with a vibrant left wing woke, if you will, uh, group that's very loud, very prominent in the party and maybe a larger softer spoken uh, Democratic Party that doesn't necessarily buy into these ideologies. And what it's trying to do is sort of advance sort of a, a soft form of critical social justice that sort of keeps that one constituency happy without doing too much to alienate its right flank. Um, and it's doing the minimum to do so. Now, I'm not sure I believe that, but that is an alternative interpretation. You know, I, I tend to, I, I think I'm going to gravitate towards that alternative explanation that David just offers, offered. And, you know, I do think that there is this, this short-term political, um, political impulse to pander to the louder and more radical wing of the party by, uh, by, by engaging in a, a full-on fight against white supremacy, against systemic racism. So, for example, the education department recently published a fund, uh, grant funding um, priority for civic education in American history programs in K-12 education, in which the 1619 Project and Ibram X. Candy's um, work are prioritized, are, are at least listed as as references. So that's um, that's one example. And then another example, the CDC has recently listed systemic racism as a public health crisis. But I I think that the problem in 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 this sort of um, uh, caving into this more radical uh, faction of the Democratic Party is is that it's dismissing the more the softer um, less aggressive yet not less in in numbers um, faction or the the majority of the American public so just look at the election in California last year uh, as I said 57.2 percent of California voters a large which includes included a large number of uh, voters who went for Biden uh, went against racial preferences. What does that tell us? That tells us that upholding the two basic principles of equality and e equal opportunity should be the single most poignant path for both political parties. And then, then yet, unfortunately, I have seen a almost um, a stubborn unwillingness on the part of the federal government and the, the Democratic Party nowadays to move beyond these narrow partisan confines and truthfully engage with the dead, dead, bull, bull eyes, dead bull's eye sensible center where the American majority live. And, and I fear that this mismatch between, uh, between politics and true policy solutions is, is going to uh, is going to cost us dearly, not not just in terms of partisan politics, but also in terms of our uh, our education system, our global competitiveness. So it becomes um, almost an existential struggle now to push back against critical race theory and the the host of symptoms and practices informed by it. Yeah, I yeah. Yes. <laughs> All I can say is yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that is a it is uh, 
an issue of global competition, if you start looking at it in science, for example, and if you have an equity orientation in science and you have to have, you have to quote a certain number of minority scientists, or you have to have your research done by a certain number of minority scientists, how is that going to keep us competitive with your country of origin, China? They're certainly not uh, applying those standards um, to minority communities. And, and, and I, I think it becomes a huge problem for this country if we're not choosing, especially in certain professions like scientists, the very best that we have. And that means creating a pipeline of, of minorities from early age who are immersed in STEM and who have all the opportunities in the world to make up for perhaps past wrongs and uh, can rise up to the uh, height of these professions. But until then, we have to, it has to be a meritocracy in my view. Right, and mer meritocracy is not uh, in conflict with with, with justice, with social justice I in its truest agree. form. So when we look at uh, all these policy prescriptions uh, promoted by critical race theory and its, uh, its, its subvariance, right? We, we look at an urge to fix the finishing line, to fix the outcomes in, in whether it's in our education system or in our broader society. So it's very, it's counterproductive because it's not looking at the root problems behind issues such as the, the academic achievement gap, such as um, such as a persistent um, a pers persistent failures throughout K to twelve education, uh, especially impacting underserved communities. So, if we truly want to lift up all American students. We need to look at solutions at the level of lower grades schools, at the level of communities, and at the level of families. But we're not looking at these sometimes painful solutions that would take maybe over a generation to achieve some positive results. So we engage in cheap politicking. And, and that's, that's also a form of soft, <laughs> soft bigotry, mm -hmm. right? Um, because we're insinuating that, that that certain groups, certain minorities cannot succeed right. without extra help, without government-sanctioned help or preferences. I totally agree. And I think yeah, all, all of us here, I mean, gosh, when you, and you even have a, an organization, you know, that's focused on equal rights. So, I mean, equal rights is, is, is what we're after. And I feel that... Um, the fear is that we are normalizing though through a lot of these the the discussions at higher levels we're normalizing not equal rights we're normalizing equity which is what we discussed earlier and i think that that is is regressive that's that's regressive towards for equal rights and like you said i mean it, it's kind of bringing us back where we're not we're we're not creating the solutions that are going to bring us to that that situation where we are and you know do have possess the equal rights that all of us here are are fighting for. It's fighting fire with fire. You couldn't have said it better. And and when we look at uh, civil rights, uh, which which I believe um, should be essentially and fundamentally individual rights, right? Civil rights are fundamentally individual rights of equal access. And, and equal protection and at a time when, when, um, when minority groups did not have, and I use the past tense here, did not have equal access and equal protection during a, a, a historical period of time, maybe civil rights were necessarily and practically and temporarily about group rights. But this conversation and normal, normal Nightization of equity and and racial justice or social justice into our public policies and public discourse is dangerously perpetuating the the temporary base of civil rights as group rights, and it's it's very dangerous. It's going to put us on a regressive and, and regressive and um, 
and discriminatory path, illiberal path, and, and I, I worry about that. Man, that is so insightful. Well, when you and I've got, I'm almost done with my drink, so I've got um, my last question for you are, is, what is, are you, uh, along this topic, what scares you the most and what gives you the most hope? Uh, let me let me start with hope because I yeah I am I'm scared about a lot of trends and and um, movements in you know pertinent to to the topics on our discussion today. But I'm more encouraged by a growing organic um, coalition or opposition against critical race theory, against racial racial grievance, against racial preferences coming from ordinary Americans of every stripe. And I'm very encouraged and grateful to the, encouraged by and grateful to the opportunity of knowing these ordinary people who may not look like me, who may not talk like me, but we agree on the very principles of what we want in our society and how we want this country to be for our for our children. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And I, I am, I'm just concerned about the, this general trend by, 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 by the political, economic and social cultural elites of obsessing with race and racism. And and I think with that obsession, it comes with it comes um, it comes a natural inclination to uh, search for 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 CRT infused solutions that are actually non solutions. So I worry about that guiding our our country into a in, into a dangerous journey. But more than more than my fears, I think I am very, I am I am very encouraged and I'm very motivated by by my fellow Americans. Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, you motivate us. That's it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.